In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Now, if you look it up in your Bible, next to the word moved, there's a little notation which says the Hebrew word is actually hovered or brooded. The Spirit brooded over the waters. And the word is plural, waters, not water. A dark and endless chaotic sea as far as you could see, except that you couldn't see because there was only darkness. But then when God created light, then you could see the sea and the Spirit brooding over it. But this actually made it more scary, not less. In Revelation, when God described the new heavens and the new earth, He says, and there was no longer any sea, which caused several sailors and fishermen to wonder if they really wanted to go to heaven. Except here, here in the book of Revelation, the word sea actually means chaos and danger. It's why the Cape Breton sailor prayer is, the sea is so great and my boat is so small. This verse reminds us God never promised to prevent all the chaos and storms in our life, but He did promise to be with us no matter where we went, no matter how bad the storms were, and no matter how small our little boat might be. And with Him in our tiny little boat, the sea suddenly isn't so big or so deep. Now Mark's gospel leaves out the story of Peter trying to walk on the water. Now, whether Peter and Mark had had a falling out or Mark just didn't think it was worth mentioning, I don't know. But the rest of the accounts are identical between Matthew and Mark. They think Jesus is a ghost. They cry out. Jesus says, I am. Don't worry. The wind is calm. And strangely enough, Jesus stepping into the boat is what makes the disciples afraid. Not him walking on water or calming the wind. By the way, that's also the part of the story that I completely and totally understand. Jesus getting into the boat and suddenly, like Peter that very first time when he said, Lord, I'm sinful, you're not, you need to go away. The thought of Jesus stepping into your boat is just overwhelming. It takes more faith than anyone has to believe they can earn or buy God's favor, which is why we are saved by grace through faith. But most of us try to do it anyway, which is why when Jesus gets into our tiny little boats, we're more afraid than if he's just passing by. It's not his calming the wind and the waves that really matters. We need him to calm our hearts and our lives. I can't count the number of times that I've used the word Jesus saves. And more often than I like, there was a slight upturn in the inflection at the end of the word saves, turning it into somewhat of a question rather than a bold statement. I've never doubted that Jesus can save. What I actually wonder is why he would bother to save me. After all, he's been very clear with all of his commands and laws, about 365 of them from the very beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation. I'm the one who can't seem to get it right, no matter how hard I try, and sometimes, I'll be honest, I don't try hard enough. There's a unique sentence that Mark includes. The disciples were completely astounded because they had not understood about the loaves. Instead, their hearts were hardened. The Greek word for astounded is extemi which literally translates to displace, to stand aside from. An accurate translation would be, they were literally beside themselves. Using biblical terminology, they were immersed and lost in the darkness of themselves and literally out of their minds. Now, just before Nancy and I got married, a couple of friends and I went to see a magic show, except we weren't smart enough to get tickets in advance. And so when we showed up at the door, they said, uh, just about all the tickets are gone. The only ones we've got 
are in the very front row on the very far right side. But you got to know this because of where these seats are. You can probably see how some of the tricks take place. In other words, you're going to get kind of a backstage tour because you're going to see how some of them worked. And we did, which is why it became the best magic show ever. Jesus doesn't do magic. There's no sleight of hand, no distraction, so that a puppy appears in his left hand while you're looking at the dove in his right hand. To the best of my knowledge and historical evidence, there was no secret angel catering kitchen under that hill of green grass that Jesus was standing on when he multiplied the fish and the loaves. And like I said, he doesn't do magic. And yet, turning five loaves of bread and two fish into enough to feed a huge crowd didn't seem to phase the disciples at all. They didn't even think it was all that special. I wish I could go back and ask the disciples why they weren't amazed when Jesus fed all those people. I'd also like to ask the disciples who they thought Jesus was, what they thought he was doing, how he was going to go about it. You know what? Maybe I can know what they were thinking by just asking you those same questions. Who is Jesus? Why is he here? And how is he going to do what you think he's going to do? Most of us don't use the words Jesus Messiah very often. Instead, we stick with the translation of the translation, Savior. More specific, Jesus is my Savior. Now comes the fun part. What's a Savior? If I asked you for your definition, what would it be? And what's he saving you from? Why is he saving you? And how is he saving you? I'm going to let you think on that for a second. There are four kinds of people in the world. The first are those who, if you say, don't touch that, it's hot, they will immediately reach out and touch it because they want to find out if you're telling the truth. The second group, they won't even get near it. In fact, they'll put their hands behind their back, and, which means they'll never know if it's actually hot. They'll never know if you're telling the truth. The third group, they don't going to listen to anything you say. They don't care. They're just going to ignore you. And the fourth group, they create their own reality. They don't care what you say. They don't care if it's true because only what they think matters. So which group are you in? As you look at your life and the things you need to be saved from, how much of it is your doing and how much is the doing of others? And because you aren't going to say it out loud, you can be honest with yourself. See, often we blame others for things that are actually our doing. It's easier to point the finger and say, they did it, than it is to accept our own sin. Jesus told his followers, if you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. If the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Another Greek lesson. The word for abide, which in other versions is translated remain or continue, is the word meno. It means to be immersed, soaked, having no room for anything else. See, there's always been a tension, and a lot of it, between justification and sanctification, between the act of being saved and what happens after, because you're saved. So do you think the 11 disciples were already saved in our gospel lesson today? We're going to leave Judas out of it because I don't have time for an eight-hour discussion on Judas and, well, everything that goes along with that. I just want to know, do you think the other 11 were already saved? This is important because it doesn't take a lot of imagination to put us in a metaphorical boat in a storm far from land in deep water 
rowing against the wind. And because our hearts can be just as hardened, meaning like a stone, as the disciples, because we don't always get what God's doing. Do you know what happens when you drop a stone in the water? If you were listening, St. Mark says, as Jesus was walking on the water and came across the disciples in the boat, and I quote, he intended to pass right by them. I love it. Jesus wanted to pass by them. Just like we try to pass by people who want something from us, or who we're annoyed with, or who we think aren't worthy of our time. But remember Hebrews 4? We have a God who understands how we feel because he experienced all these emotions. He just didn't give in to those feelings. You see, even though he wanted to pass them by, he didn't because he knew they needed to be saved, even if they didn't know it yet. Jesus was always connecting justification and sanctification, being saved with living saved, because it matters. When he said, if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed, it's not just about heaven. It's also about the here and the now. True freedom from sin, death, and the devil is found in loving and following God on earth and in heaven. Now, this is not the boat story where everybody thinks they're going to die while Jesus is sleeping in the back of the boat with his head on a cushion. No, this story has wind and waves, but they're fishermen, so they can handle it. Now, the problem is the wind's directly against them, and so they're having to row to the other side. But because their boat is so small and the water is so deep and their hearts are made of stone, Jesus doesn't pass by because he loves them, even if they haven't figured out who he really is yet. It's called substitutionary atonement. Most people just say, Jesus died for me. If we understand Jesus died for us so that we can begin to live a life of repentance and forgiveness now, meaning the Spirit softens our heart of stone until eventually we are able to love perfectly, but not until we get to heaven, then we're on our way. But if we think Jesus died for us so that we can live any way we want, in other words, we can keep our hearts of stone through this whole life, but when the time comes, just tell the gate guard, well, Jesus died for me, and then suddenly the heart of stone melts. We might want to reread the Bible. See, two words get used in the church when it comes to being a Christian. Follow and believe. Jesus said, follow me, when he called the disciples. He said, go ahead, follow me. But he asked, do you believe when he healed someone? The two are not the same. Believing is entry-level faith. It only requires the mind, heart, and soul to accept the possibility of what it cannot fully comprehend. It's saying, I believe this is possible, not I fully understand it. Such faith is enough to be saved, but it may not be able to stand up to the storms of life, which is why Jesus leads us to the follow me stage of the Christian life. St. James says, you believe that God is one, which is good, but the demons also believe and they shudder. See, the truth is, being saved from ourselves and the everyday destruction of our sin and the sins of others, it takes more than just, well, Jesus died for me. I don't doubt you believe, but do you have enough faith to handle the storms of life in a tiny little boat? How easy is it for you to turn the other cheek when someone insults you or your family? Ever had problems falling asleep because you've had anxiety over worry or something? How about judging others? Ever hesitated in giving your time or your talent or your treasure to someone who has a great need? How well do you love your enemy? Pray for those who persecute you. Forgive those who don't deserve it. Be a neighbor to those who live next door and even those who live halfway around the world. You see, if you confess your sins involving these things and more, and all I say to you is, Jesus died for you. 
and sends you on your way to wash, rinse, and repeat. Is that enough? Are you willing to be trapped in a cycle of dysfunction? Or do you believe that God can change you in the here and the now? You aren't going to be perfect on this side of heaven. You're not even going to be close to perfect. But does God have the ability to help you do more than just believe in Him? Can He draw you close enough to Him so that you're following Him? And as you follow Him, your life is slowly transformed. You begin to see what He is doing. And your heart, as it melts from stone to flesh, wants to be part of that. We are not and cannot be saved by our good works. But we can lose faith, be condemned by our guilt, have sleepless nights and panic over how small our boat is because of our bad works. This is why St. James says, faith without works is dead, which, by the way, is true in the reverse. Works without faith is also dead. The two are enmeshed, intertwined, and inseparable in the life of a Christian. Trying to impress God with our faith is foolish because then our faith has become a work. Trying to impress God with our good works brings about pride, which the Bible says leads to a nasty fall, which if our hearts are stone and we fall overboard into the deep water out of our tiny little boat, is not good. Maybe the disciples thought Jesus had a bunch of bread and fish up his sleeve, so feeding everybody was nothing more than an illusion, something that anybody could do with practice. That's why they didn't think it was a big deal, that maybe with enough practice even they could do it. But when Jesus comes walking on the water in the middle of the night in a storm, that's beyond their ability to understand. I love what they ask each other in Matthew's Gospel. Who is he that even the wind and the waves obey him? They haven't figured it out yet. In that moment, all their hard-heartedness, the unworthiness, the guilt, the sin, they start to weigh heavily on their soul. By the way, if Jesus had just kept walking, if he had walked right past then they could have shoved all of their feelings back into the darkness and completely ignored it. But when Jesus got in the boat, he was either going to throw them overboard, where they, by the way, would sink like stones, or he was going to love them in spite of themselves. If you were Jesus, what would you have done? So where are you in this story? It takes us back to the questions. What's a Savior? What does he need to save you from? How is he going to save you? Why is he going to save you? And if you're saved, what do you think that means for your life? I left out the last part of the gospel lesson intentionally. And by the way, when I say I left it out, I didn't actually print it in the worship folders. I want to read it to you. You see, the moment that they land on the shore, this is what Mark says. Oh, and Matthew says it too. When they had crossed over, they came to Gennesaret and beached the boat. And as they got out, the people immediately recognized Jesus. They hurried and began to carry the sick on mats to wherever Jesus was. They laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they might touch even the tassel of his robe. And everyone who touched it was made well. What do you think that said to the disciples? The disciples who were trying to figure out who Jesus was, who didn't get the whole feeding of the 5,000 thing but understood that when Jesus came walking on the water that he was more than they thought he was. And now it seems that everybody in the community knows who Jesus is. And they're coming and they're saying, can we even touch the tassel of your rope? That's enough to heal us. Jesus did not call the disciples because, quoting Will Smith from Men in Black, they were the best of the best of the best, sir. They were saved. 
but they had the simplest faith. Enough to get them into heaven if they never faced anything worse than a B- minus on a quantum physics exam. But everything they experienced prepared them for the next thing, which prepared them for the next thing, which prepared them for the next thing, which prepared them for, yeah, you guessed it, the next thing. And along the way, their justification was strengthened by their sanctification. Being saved allowed them to figure out how to live like they were saved. Deep water, leaky boat, storms, whatever came their way didn't matter because the Spirit was now working in and through them to change them so that they could be part of the change in the world. It's a little scary to have the God who created the universe and separated the waters, who holds eternity in His hands, get into your tiny little boat. Notice something else. There are no words recorded between Jesus and the disciples. It was probably a very quiet rowing time to the other side. Later would come the have you no faith. But for right now, Jesus knows they are trying to figure things out, just like you and me are trying to figure things out. Matthew includes Peter trying to walk on the water, failing and crying out, Jesus save me. And yeah, Jesus saves him. Matthew ends with, and all those in the boat worshipped him. Mark doesn't include any of that. Not because it didn't happen, but most likely because sometimes words don't reflect what you're actually feeling. Their hearts of stone were starting to change. That had to be really strange to them. In Matthew's account, the only thing they say is, truly, you are the Son of God. And I would imagine after speaking those words, it took a while for what that meant to sink in, and even longer to realize what it meant for them and their lives. Just like it does for us, as we try to figure out who He is and what that means for us and our lives. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.